Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 4 of our Cold War Crash Course. We're nearly ready to begin the Korean War, but before we do, we have some scene setting and context building still to get through. In the last few episodes, we saw how the Cold War gradually came into being, how it was far from either a sudden turn of events or a major break with past traditions. The Cold War, as we saw, was merely a continuation of what had come before the Second World War, yet its development came not in the ashes of Europe, but in the halls and corridors of the Foreign Minister Conferences, 
where the major powers attempted to sort out some form of a deal, only to discover that major differences still remained in place. In this episode, we tell the story of the developing Cold War, and note its official beginning as somewhere in spring 1947, and yet another conference to determine the fate of Germany. It was Germany, more than perhaps any other issue, which divided not merely the Soviets and the West, but also the Allies themselves. After 1947, events would proceed in such a way that would harden all perspectives and remove any genuine chance for compromise. Without any further ado then, let's get into it, as I take you to summer 1945. Before we begin this episode, guys, I would just like to take a second to talk to you about When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. You see, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon and has been on Patreon since February 2017. So we've been here nearly a year, and in that time, I have been able, thanks to purely your guys' generosity, to develop and expand upon the original scope of this podcast like never before. It really is purely thanks to you guys and your guys' monetary support that I am able to have When Diplomacy Fails as my part-time job. And that, considering that everyone really dreams to do their own thing as their own job, is something that I can never thank you guys enough for. But it's not just a charity exercise. You see, why it's not mandatory for you guys to give me money in order to listen to this podcast, if you were to give me either $2 a month or $5 a month, then you could have access to some pretty sweet perks. Let's just run through them briefly. If you've heard these little advertisement things before, then by all means, do fast forward. It won't take all that long to talk about it. But if you're curious, or if today's the day you feel like you want to join up after having put it off for a while, then by all means, listen to what we have in store for you in 2018. And hey, if you're interested, do click the link below which will take you to When Diplomacy Fells' Patreon page. So if you sign up for $2 a month, you guys will get the episodes a week early, without ads, without any of those ads from Acast, or without any ads for myself, put in this kind of format here. And you will also get access to the 10-part series called Louis' Arms and Armies, which I released to $2 patrons after it had been a $5 exclusive for some time. If you would like to delve into more detail into the era of Louis XIV, and the weapons and kind of military strategy that was used at that time, then by all means do check that series out. I've heard pretty good things about it, and it seems as though you guys really enjoyed me taking a detour into the specifics of that era. Okay, so what do $5 patrons get? Well, $5 patrons get the same as $2 patrons, except they also get an hour of extra content every month. What that looks like is, in the past, a somewhat disorganized arrangement where I put out, like, two episodes of some sort, but since we've gotten more organized and gotten our stuff together a bit, what it now looks like is that we essentially have a series running concurrent to the main series. So, in the past, we had Louis' Arms and Armies, we had the Jan Sobieski miniseries, and now we have something called 1956, which looks at events that took place three years after the end of the Korean War. So it is kind of just like a sequel to the Korean War. So if you're really interested in this era and you feel like you can't get enough of my take on it, then by all means, check that series out. For a fiver a month, you could be hearing stories about the Suez Crisis, the process of de-Stalinization, and how the Soviet Union, racked by the death of Stalin, managed to gather its resources together and brutally crush any signs of dissent in Hungary or Poland. With surprising results and implications, for the future of the Soviet Union. There were things going on all over the world in 1956, 
and it's a really interesting time and a really interesting year that I was drawn to, so do check it out if you think you would be interested. Okay, so with that being said, guys, I just want to jump into this episode. Thank you very much for your patience, and I hope you will consider supporting us on Patreon if you like your history to thrive. Right, let's get into this. More or less, the following attitude developed among the employees of the Ministry of State Security. We have been particularly checked over. We are particularly good comrades. We are, so to speak, first-class comrades. William Zeiser, Ministry of State Security in the German Democratic Republic. For all of its shattering impact, everyone expected the aftermath of the Second World War to proceed much like the end of every other war. Peace conferences, where the powers on both sides of the fence would be invited, needed to take place, and there could be no question of ignoring the major issues of the day. Reparations, the German question, plans for future cooperation, all such deals would have to be hammered out when the foreign ministers met face to face. From the 17th of July to the 2nd of August 1945, the Big Three met at the Potsdam Conference. It was there that Churchill, until he was replaced by Clement Attlee, Stalin and Truman, hammered out some of the most controversial deals. Many of which had already been agreed to in principle in the still more contentious Yalta Conference in the previous February. Here's a segment of Roosevelt talking to Congress about the Yalta Conference in February 1945. Speaking in all practice, the question of whether it is entirely fruitful or not lies to a great extent in your hands. For unless you are here, you here in the halls of the American Congress, with the support of the American people, concur in the general conclusions reached at a place called Yalta, and give them your active support, the meeting will not have produced lasting results. And that is why I have come before you at the earliest hour I could after my return. I want to make a personal report to you, and at the same time to the people of the country. Many months of earnest work are ahead of us all, and I should like to feel that when the last stone is laid on the structure of international peace, it will be an achievement for which all of us in America have worked steadfastly and unselfishly together. Post-war new order would have to be arranged, and Stalin would have to be granted certain rights over the stakes nearest to the Soviet Union, while Stalin himself would have to acknowledge the West as a sphere belonging firmly to the Anglo-Americans. While there was no concept in summer 1945 of a Cold War as we now recognise it, the threads of the Iron Curtain were already being sewn together. The question of Germany was saved until last, largely because it was expected to create the most difficulties, and the powers instead looked to gain approval for their own spheres. Stalin's bill was predictably high, but the West proved willing to pay. Territorial questions over the Eastern European states, many of which, such as Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania and Finland had been on the Axis side, were solved to Stalin's great benefit. If the question of Poland was controversial, then it had already been solved in the previous Yalta conference, where Churchill infamously gave his approval for Stalin's de facto occupation of that republic. We must remember that even if the image of the West giving Stalin what he wanted, 
and failing to apparently challenge him over the question of Poland, Hungary or Bulgaria, for instance, seems damning, the reality was far less insidious. In the first place, Churchill and Stalin... Churchill and Roosevelt were only confirming to Stalin what the Soviet leader was already well-placed to seize. In Poland's case, for example, at the exact time that the Yalta Conference was proceeding in February 1945, Polish communists were converging under the umbrella of the Lublin Committee, where that party's members seized power far out of reach of any Western protests. The reality was that neither Churchill nor Roosevelt could afford to antagonise Stalin by trying to prevent him getting what the Red Army's presence dictated was already his. The boundary settlements agreed to at Yalta and the divisions of the eastern countries into different ratios, so for example the deals that saw Yugoslavia and Hungary be controlled by the Anglo-American and Soviets on a 50-50 basis, Romania being 90% under Russian control and Bulgaria 75%, while Greece being 90% British. Such deals, scribbled by Churchill on a scrap of paper and then slid across the table to Stalin, was not the criminally mobster-type division of post-war spoils that it is often depicted as. Such a policy, of course, seems incredibly cynical on the part of the West, and the Poles in particular would reason long afterwards that they had been abandoned by Churchill and Roosevelt at Yalta. But by February 45, as we saw, both communism and Stalinism were too firmly entrenched in the entire Eastern sphere for either Churchill or Roosevelt to ever dream of attempting to dislodge it. In February 1945, Churchill and Roosevelt had vested interests in keeping Stalin sweet. At that time, the importance of keeping the Red Army on side for the final push into Germany was upheld, as was the assistance which the Soviets could provide in the struggle with Japan. The heavy losses incurred by the Americans as the island hopped their way closer to Japan's home islands had demonstrated the high cost of the war, and in February 45, a plan for the invasion of Japan itself, estimated to cost as much as 1 million American casualties, was still on the cards. In such circumstances, the West couldn't afford to push Stalin away, and in the post-war peace accords, the policy was further adhered to. The only difference was, in the peace conferences at Potsdam in summer 1945, and in the different European capitals in 1946, the question of Germany remained the issue, rather than the Soviet support for the war against Japan. Until the penny dropped in spring 1947, both Clement Attlee and President Truman had been led to believe that the German question was an equation which couldn't be solved without Stalin's help, and they were committed to give him everything he wanted to make sure he stayed on side. Stalin was thus vindicated in his quest to acquire reparations and booty not merely from the defeated Axis powers on his western flank, but also from the eastern portion of Germany that the Red Army still occupied. Entire factories, valuable collections and whatever remained of the German currency were seized and shipped eastwards as payment in kind. At Potsdam, unlike at Yalta, it proved possible to reach some form of agreement on this policy, whereas at Yalta the issue of dividing or making Germany pay after the conflict was deliberately avoided. In summer 1945, there was not yet any plan to create an East and West German state, but the signs were already presenting themselves that some sort of division would have to be necessary. In the first place, the idea to split Germany into four allied zones, with Britain, America, France and the Soviets each controlling a sphere, was properly formalised at Potsdam. Already though, the Allies were treating the eastern and western portions of Germany as separate and distinct. For example, Stalin, as we saw, 
was permitted to take what he wanted from eastern Germany in his zone, but not from the western zones. Although some measure of agreement on Germany's division was reached at Potsdam, coming to an agreement on the nature of reparations on an organised basis, which the French and Soviets both wanted, and on the defined state of the German border with Poland to the east, all produced conflict, so it was established at Potsdam that the can would essentially be kicked down the road. In further Allied conferences on the question of post-war settlements, it was said, the future of Germany would be addressed. This necessitated conferences of the Allied foreign ministers taking place, and so they did for the next two years, the first taking place two months after Potsdam, and the final one taking place in December 1947. It was during the course of these conferences, perhaps more than any other event, that the truly insurmountable differences between the two sides of the world would become clear. On the Anglo-American side, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to decimate the German ability to govern itself, pay for itself, and control its own destiny. The actual costs of running the different occupation zones were proving far larger than initially anticipated, and the benefits of sticking to the occupation policy were becoming harder to properly discern. There was an added fear, surely expected by Stalin, that the whole process of occupying Germany would prove too much of a costly bother, and that the Allies would extricate themselves from Germany and just leave the mess to the Soviets. And what a mess it was. In July 1946, the British had been forced to import 112,000 tons of wheat and 50,000 tons of potatoes just to feed the German people in their occupation zone. At the most, London was able to extract $25 million from these same Germans in reparations, yet it was then forced to cough up $80 million to pay for the occupation process. The British taxpayer would have to make up the difference, and bread rationing was introduced at home, which even the Second World War itself had not inflicted on the British populace. Even if the Americans were not forced to pay the same amounts, and the American zone was not as damaged by the war, the whole process still seemed absurd in Washington. What was the point in beating the Germans down when it only cost the Allies money? In May 1946 this question was answered, as the reparations payments from the American zone were suspended, supposedly temporarily, with the British also suspending their payments in July of that year. Still though, the four Allies were committed to a Levels of Industry Agreement, which permitted German industrial capabilities to reach no higher than an agreed set of standards. The British government, in addition, were reluctant to accept the notion of a permanently divided Germany between East and West, though such a belief was not to last. The final Nuremberg trial ended in October 1946, and by that time it was already apparent that the four occupying powers were not destined to reach an agreement. A set of Paris peace treaties agreed to in the spring of 1946, and formalising the issues laid down in the Yalta and Potsdam conferences, still failed to reach any kind of concrete deal on Germany, because there was nothing concrete about how the Allies saw the other's occupation. While it is tempting to mark the merging of the British and American zones of Germany at the end of 1946 as the beginning of a Western German state, the reality was not so simple. The French still clung to their zone of Germany, and in February 1947, Britain and France signed the Dunkirk Treaty, which pledged the two powers to defend one another in the event of German aggression. The US Secretary of State George C. Marshall, author of the Marshall Plan, was optimistic that any disagreements over economic or political issues in Germany would not lead automatically to an East-West German divide, and he was far from the only one. 
The real moment when the penny dropped, the event that I keep on referring to with regards to Germany's future, and to the and real development of the Cold War itself as we would recognise it, can be marked in spring 1947. In a Moscow meeting of the Allied Foreign Ministers from the 10th of March to the 24th of April 1947, the British, French, American and Soviet representatives all gathered in the Soviet capital to seek a deal on the German situation. Before long, though, the intractable differences became obvious. The Anglo-Americans remained determined to build up their combined zones so that Germany would be able to pay its way. Yet the Soviets, and to a lesser extent the French, still desired reparations to come from all zones, and the Soviets especially wanted to see the creation of a single German administration. It was convenient that the Anglo-American ministers managed to agree among themselves that a single German state was no longer possible before they had left for Moscow. If a single German administration was created, then the Red Army would be strategically placed to lord itself over the entire polity, cutting the Western Allies gradually out of the equation over time. This does seem to have occurred to the French, who gradually switched sides over the course of the conference in spring 1947 and began to see things the Anglo-American way. It was the Moscow Conference of 1947 which really rang down the Iron Curtain. These were the words of Robert K. Murphy, the political advisor to the United States military government in Germany. In fact, British Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevan had long since given up hope of reaching a common accord on Germany by spring 1947, and he felt generally melancholy about the entire German situation, but for his peers at the Moscow Conference, it was a turning point. Certainly for the American and French ministers, as much as Molotov and Stalin, the conference was an eye-opener. The abandoning of the idea of a single German administration and the newfound desire to rebuild the German economy without reparations stung the Soviets. By the time the four ministers met again in late June 1947, the Anglo-Americans had reached an agreement on the creation of a German-led administration in their jointly governed by-zone. Since the end of the war, this had been governed by the militaries of both Britain and America, but this new proposal to hand back governance to the Germans had the potential to greatly antagonise the French, who were only willing to go so far. Yet it was hoped that the arrangement would lead in time to a more stable and better organised German polity, and so it proved. This Anglo-American creation would soon develop, after the French fused their zone in April 1949, into the more familiar West German state, the Federal Republic of Germany. In August 1947, the Anglo-American zone removed the previous limits on industrial output, and surged ahead with a new plan written up by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to rebuild German industry, commerce and governance. It was clear that by this point, the Germans were no longer seen as either Britain or America's enemy. One final meeting of the foreign ministers took place in London from the 25th of November to the 16th of December 1947. It was there that curious scenes and awkward moments took place, as the elephant in the room loomed into view. It was clear by this point that the Big Four had reached a point of divergence, and that the Anglo-American side in particular were determined to forge ahead without consultation with the Soviet interest. By the end of the first London conference, it was clear that the French were also firmly in the Anglo-American camp. Soviet diplomacy would evidently not be in a position to play upon the French fears of a German rearmament and thereby outflank the Anglo-American bloc. 
events outside of the conference, as much as the difficult opinions and uncompromising positions within it, proved greatly motivating when it came to pushing the three Western allies together. Stalin, it seemed, and exactly helped his case. Indeed, as the four powers met in London in late 1947, the finishing touches had already been put on the common form, an organisation containing representatives of the relevant communist states and their party leaders, whether in power or out of power. Not only did Stalin proceed to clamp down harder on the Soviet satellites within the Eastern Bloc, but he also ordered that the French and Italian communist parties switch to a more hardline stance and avoid compromise or coalition. Stalin, don't forget, was still banking on the anticipated conflict between America and Britain, and he also expected the Communist Party in Italy, which contained millions of citizens, and in France, which boasted over 25% of the vote, to expand still further. Such facts emphasise how Stalin had hardened his stance towards the West and towards his own satellites. He was bent on securing his borders against any Western threats, but he seemed more determined than ever before to expand the Soviet writ, which produced disastrous results in February 1948. It was in February 1948 that Britain, France and America had gathered together to continue on in the spirit of the old talks on Germany's future, but with the notable absence of the Soviets from the picture. The final conference involving the four ministers had broken up in December 1947 without any further plans for scheduling any additional meetings, and into this impasse, aware of the urgency that the German dilemma was creating, the French were invited to take part in Anglo-American talks in London on the 23rd of February 1948. Debates proceeded with some difficulties, though the French were by now more agreeable than they had been before. However, what truly spurred the three allies on was the news which reached London on the 25th of February while all three men were seated together. In an event which would come to be known in the communist discourse as Victorious February, the Communist Party in Czechoslovakia, in tandem with Soviet agents, had launched a coup in Prague and seized power, demolishing the previously democratic Czech state in the process and further expanding Stalin's sphere in a sudden, forceful manner. The effect of Stalin's expansion was immediate. It compelled the French to put aside any reservations that they may have had over the establishment of a West German state, and the Marshall Plan was also welcomed into the new state, since this would help establish the West German administration on firm foundations. These developments in Germany were given a Soviet face thanks to the uncomfortable four-power meetings which were still going on in Berlin. The Allied Control Council in Berlin had been designed to organise and control affairs in the German capital, and for some time had been a bone of contention to the Soviets as the city lay within the Soviet Eastern Sphere. The rapid actions of the British, French and Americans had forced the Soviet backs against the wall, and at the Allied Control Council meeting on the 20th of March, the unilateral actions of the Allies were denounced, and the Soviet general present in the meeting also lamented that the West Germans had never had a chance to bring socialism to their lands, and instead had had capitalism forced upon them. This, of course, all took place in front of the other Allied representatives. The Soviet general didn't seem to factor in the question of whether or not the Czechs had wanted communism forced upon their people, but by this stage the hypocrisy of the Soviets had become a running joke for the Western Allies. What was not a joke, though, was the Soviet exit from the room en masse on the 20th of March 1948, 
which signalled that the joint occupation of both Berlin and Germany, at least on cooperative grounds, was effectively over. From this point onwards, it seemed highly likely that there was to be no optimistic, considerate, four-power conferences. The differences between the Soviets and the West had evidently grown too large, and in any case, the Soviets had plainly demonstrated their disdain for the post-war accords by forcing their way into Prague. As if signalling the new direction of Soviet relations, on the 1st of April 1948, the various land routes into Berlin were gradually cut off, leaving the Allied delegation in Berlin mostly stranded. Although it couldn't be clear at the time, the Berlin blockade, to be followed by the Berlin airlift, was just beginning, and with it, the Cold War was to follow. The process by which the Third Reich was occupied, divided, and eventually formally split into East and West, provides us with a convenient lens through which we can watch the Cold War develop. Germany, perhaps more than any other issue in Europe, created and then crystallised the divisions between the West and the Soviets, but to explain the Cold War we also have to consider the personality of Joseph Stalin, and the system over which he ruled. In the next episode we'll take this analysis further, but for now it suffices to note that the Cold War developed as it did, largely because of Stalin's errors. These errors were far from predictable in 1945, when goodwill and positive ambitions for the wartime alliance remained in place. But so long as Stalin continued to operate with a strong arm rather than a gentle, coaxing phrase book, his sins were far harder to ignore or to fall victim to. One is struck by the question of what might have been had Stalin approached the situation in a different way. Had he agreed to the Marshall Plan, the Americans would have been powerless to hold their monies back from the beleaguered East, and such willingness to accept Western aid would have greatly improved Stalin's image in these same Eastern territories. Following from this, if Stalin had then persuaded a majority of Germans as to his intentions of creating an independent, united and neutral Germany, still linked to the West and far from ostracised from its debates, then the Soviets would have seemed far less alien to those same Western governments, and they may even have been able to convince the more open statesmen within them to agree to a German settlement which saw the Soviets heavily involved. For all of these scenarios to happen though, Stalin's character would have to have been radically different, and his rampant suspicion and growing paranoia would have to have been replaced by a tactical awareness of the soft power potential of the Soviet Union, rather than its hard power capabilities which led him to approve the shocking coup in Prague. As Dean Acheson, the US Secretary of State, put it in his memoirs, we were fortunate in our opponents. The hard power of the Soviets, in other words, Moscow's ability to use its military or the threat of force to strong arm its opponents, was reaching its apogee in the late 1940s, and the Korean War in summer 1950 represented a further escalation of Stalin's attempts to use the Soviet Union's best asset, the Red Army, for immediate gain. At the same time as the Soviet Union increased its involvement in both Eastern and Western Communist parties, Stalin also ratcheted it up his personal involvement in seeing to it that his enemies were liquidated. As if playing right into Western hands, Stalin's paranoia reached its peak just at the point that the Red Army's reputation reached a terrifying peak of his own. While the Korean War raged on in the background of this conflict was the spectacle of show trials, mass executions on unprecedented suspicion as a new Stalinist terror and its customary purges were spread all across the Eastern Soviet bloc. 
Not only did the German situation represent a parting of the ways then, but for Stalin it confirmed his worst fears and suspicions. The Western Allies could not be trusted, and were only interested in seeing his regime crumble down. Under such circumstances, what other state could the two sides of the world and its two major ideologies be in but that of war? If it wasn't a proper official war, then it was a war of another kind. The interlude provided by the Second World War was evidently over, and as the Berlin blockade was stepped up in summer 1948, Western responses served to harden Soviet attitudes as the split between East and West solidified. In the next episode, our final installment of the Cold War Crash Course, we look at the Soviet governance of the Eastern European states, the Western response to the Berlin blockade, and the creation of the different organisations in the years leading up to the Korean War. We also examine Stalin's second round of purges as the Soviet dictator reached the end of his life and examine the incredible toll which this had on the unfortunate peoples which were captured in its net. Until then though, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the fourth episode of the Cold War Crash Course. Thanks for listening history friends and my lovely patrons and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 